Dean, and thank you all for coming this evening. It's a great honor, a great pleasure to be here. And that's not just because it's my first opportunity to visit the new building um, that you have here, which um, is much admired, much discussed, much envied um, in other parts of the, um, the um, academic world. Um, of course, one of my purposes is heading back over east after this to a Fennish sort of place um, with lots of information about how you do things here um, to encourage our wealthy donors to, to step up a bit and, uh, and um, join, join Oxford in uh, producing such wonderful facilities as you have here. So, so it's a pleasure to be here. So um, what, what, uh, let me give a bit of background um, to the topic I'm addressing now. Um, it, this is because the topic itself, uh, although it's about countries that are in the news a lot now, most obviously Syria, uh, I'm not addressing it from the angle that um, is most obviously topical. I'm not addressing Daesh, I'm not addressing refugees, I'm not addressing those sorts of topics. And that's because I started this research project coming at it from a very particular angle, which was trying to understand the formation of new political elites in the Arab world, in the Arab Middle East. Um, trying to understand the changing constitution of elite politics in the region. And of course, there is no place better to be, to be discussing this than St. Anthony's, of course. I mean, uh, here you have um, some have had some of the foremost scholars um, who've, who've looked at the ways in which uh, elite politics has, has organized itself socially and sociologically over the centuries. So obvi the obvious starting point in any discussion of the constitution of political elites is the politics of notables. Uh, which takes us back to the great Albert Hurani, the founder director of this place. Um, you go then through um, the discussion of people like Philippe Khoury, who, um, who wrote, I believe, um, Arab um, notables and Arab nationalism while he was here in St. Th Anthony's too. Um, so I've mentioned two Antonians already. Um, I think I'll be mentioning five over the, over the course of this talk. Um, so if you get bored with the content of the talk, you can just sort of tick, mentally tick off, as it were, the Antonians I mentioned um, during, during this presentation. But of course, um, the approach to studying political elites or politically relevant elites in the Arab Middle East can't stop at the story of the notables um, um, of the 19th century. There are, of course, those who still draw upon that literature, including myself, um, but, of course, the nature of elite politics has changed remarkably over the past um, hundred years. Um, many people have pointed to the development of professional middle classes, the role of private businesses, the role of militaries in generating political elites in the region. But, and this is, I suppose, my first point of engagement with that literature, these stories that are told about the formation of national political elites are primarily stories about that are located within the, within the frame of national politics. And in reality, I've often found um, over the many years I've look, looked at this theme, that actually we have to look at things as well from a transnational and international perspective. Elite change is located much more obviously nowadays, not just in the Arab Middle East, but across the world at the level of transnational networks. People who come to Oxford and Cambridge for educations or the US for their educations, people who develop transnational business networks, 
people who work in the field of international organisations. And, and these people often then also have purchase within their domestic political settings. So it's unsatisfactory just to consider new elites as an add-on to traditional notables. It's unsatisfactory to just think about the national domain as the primary domain within which elite politics is generated. And so when it came to the, the uprisings from December 2010 across many Arab countries, one of my major interests was in who is coming to the fore within the politics of post-revolutionary states. Who are the people who are, who are emerging as significant political actors once old um, governing structures are swept away? And that coincided with the second sort of interest I had, which, was in the, was, which is an interest in the uh, politics of diasporas. How do Arab diasporas, predominantly in Europe, but also in the US, how have they generated forms of organization, forms of politics within themselves, which then often transfer um, um, back to the home country? Because of course, we talk about diasporas as if they are static, but again, they're not, and you have many, um, many um, leading actors who move between the home country and the West on a, on a regular basis and who take leading political roles in both domains. So the very notion of the diaspora in that, that context changes. So what's going to follow is me trying to put these two different interests together. The idea of um, new political elites and the role of, of diasporas in the politics of the Arab Middle East. And what follows isn't an all-embracing account. I'm not trying to say that this is, as it were, what new political elites are. In some ways, I'm trying to give a slightly negative story about a failed attempt to generate new political elites. But one thing I'm going to address is, is a, a topic within this broader field, and that just is giving you the, the sort of intellectual context within what follows is going, to, is, going to be, is going to be brought out. And so what I'm trying to do is make a fairly ambitious, if that doesn't sound arrogant, a fairly ambitious argument about an attempt within um, a number of different contexts to generate new structures of governance um, and show, firstly, how that came about, secondly, how it related to questions of legitimacy in politics, and thirdly, how it generated a set of problems that remain unresolved. And the three cases I'm going to be addressing are um, Libya, the formation of a transitional national council in Syria, the National Coalition for Syrian Revolutionary and Opposition Forces, commonly called the Syrian National Coalition, and the Yemeni transitional arrangements that, that started up in 2011, but have had a number of subsequent iterations. Um, and I've worked on all three of these different bodies. I've worked on how they came about and who their members were, who their leading activists were, into then the transplantation into, the, into the, the domestic context to see how their attempts at creating models of governance worked on the ground. We can discuss any of those three examples at greater length uh, in the Q&A, but what I'm just going to be doing in the talk is setting out what I see as being the common processes going on within these three different sets of institutions, these three different processes, how there are what I think are interesting similarities that come out of three quite diverse cases um, and how they encounter similar problems in attempting to generate new forms of government 
in the, in the midst of or in the aftermath of the fall of old leaders. And what I'm going to be doing is addressing them with a term that I use, which I, which, which I generated, which is what I call governments in waiting. These are organizations that are based often, but not exclusively, in diasporas, that operate primarily in the expectation that the institutions that previously controlled their home territory are, or have, or are in the process of collapsing. They set themselves preemptively to take up full political authority subsequent to that collapse. Crucially, for the purposes that we've got here, these are organizations that refer to themselves as governments, transitional governments. They structure themselves as governments and they seek recognition on the international stage as governments. So that's the category of actors that I'm going to be trying to set out as being essentially a coherent um, notion um, which, um, which the talk is going to be structured around. Now, of course, there are historic parallels here. There are ideas of governments in exile that have existed for a long time. Think of Charles de Gaulle in the Second World War, or the Tibetan government in Damsala, or the, the provision government in Algeria during the, uh, during the Civil War based in Cairo, or the Palestinian administration in Jordan, Lebanon, Tunisia, as it developed over the second half of the 20th century. And then you have cases of governments that are ousted and set themselves up in, in exile, like the coalition government of the Democratic Campuchia or the Spanish Republican government that existed in exile from 1939. So you have ideas of how governments in exile have existed. And while those sorts of institutions bear some similarities with what I'm calling governments in waiting, there are two different, emphases, different significant differences of emphasis I'm going to draw attention to. The first is that one of the primary formal purposes of governments in waiting is to exercise effective governance over any, ter any territory that comes under their control, often within the context of an ongoing war. As such, as these bodies are keen to stress, leading personnel are often already within the territory of their country. They're engaged in the partial administration of sectors of that territory and are therefore not in exile at all. It's for that reason that governments, that, that bodies like the Libyan Transitional National Council and the Syrian Interim Government, I'll explain those two in a bit more in detail in a moment, don't use the term government in exile because they're keen to emphasize that they're already there on the ground in those cases. The difference is also one of context. A, a plausible claim is made of the imminence of the final collapse of the old order. And therefore, the notion of exile, with its connotation of durability, is inappropriate. The second difference is a subtler but more interesting one. The earlier examples I mentioned of governments in exile have all been isolated cases with their own particular histories and political trajectories and varying levels of significance. They were ad hoc bodies set up usually without much prior consultation either with other states or with domestic groups. As such, a general account is unlikely to generate any significant findings. By contrast, what's notable about these three cases is their systematic quality. They've emerged out of similar contexts. They've been formed through an interaction of established diaspora groups defecting political and military actors within the territory of the state and external powers. 
there's moreover been a learning process at work between these cases, with politically active groups and international policy transferring lessons from one experience to the next and forging strategic alliances between those different actors. As such, I'm going to consider governments in waiting as I map them out here, an active class of agents in politics within which recognition as a member of this group is sought and expectations that come from mem group membership are generated. So part of the learning process for both governments in waiting and foreign states has been picking up the value of interim governments um, as they've been conceptualised in, in international relations thought over the past few decades. Since the mid-1990s, and coinciding with the large-scale expansion of United Nations peacekeeping missions uh, and other processes of, processes of intervention, a broad analysis has emerged in academic and policy circles about the forms of governance most appropriate for what is often dubbed the post-conflict peace-building phase. As part of that broad field, emphasis is placed on the significance of a transitional period between a situation of conflict and a situation of peace, and a new technical discourse on how legitimacy and stability can be furthered has been generated. Transitional or interim governments were the agents that would take the role of achieving the distinctive objectives of the post-conflict phase. Now, that literature has a significant normative dimension to it, resting upon assumptions made of the commitment of the international community, in scare quotes, to the values of human rights, democratic constitutionalism, and peace. The focus of that literature has been about how internationally supportive processes of transition, in which interim government are the only significant claimants on rule. It is adaptable, however, for use by and for these governments in waiting, in which the normative presuppositions become part of their identificatory discourse. So, for example, with the Syrian um, national coalition, the French prime minister, most notably at the time, called it the future interim government of a democratic Syria. That was the way in which he spoke off the national coalition. Merging de discourses of normative value with those of effective government through the explanation of what it was that he was talking about. It slots into an established discourse on the role and purpose of interim government that serves to validate the institutions through mapping out their political activities onto the actual forms of political organisation. Nevertheless, there have been assumptions in and absences from the academic literature on interim government that have become especially acute when trying to apply them to the cases that we're looking at in the Arab Middle East. So the actors who form part of interim governments are generally taking as emerging automatically out of the preceding conflict and the deals made to end that conflict. By contrast, the means through which governments in waiting have been created, I'm going to argue, has been complicated and politicised. It's the intersection of elite coordination, external conditionality, and the claim to popular participation that marks them out as an object of study. It's further assumed that much of the right, in the, much of the writing on interim governments, that the institution has international legitimacy. It's got a United Nations resolution which supports it. The problem considered by many of the authors is how it acquires domestic legitimacy. However, the governments in waiting I'm going to be addressing 
experience a heightened problem of external legitimacy. Their central claim has been that the existing government has in some sense lost its right or its ability to rule. It no longer represents the people and in that sense should not be recognised as, as retaining legitimate authority. A common argument drawing upon the liberal interventionist discourse of the 1990s has been that the existing government has somehow forfeited, it, forfeited its right to rule because of a violation of the norms of rightful practice, such as abuse of human rights. Um, the formal claim made by these bodies on the international stage, therefore, is that the old government has lost the right to speak for the people. It has lost the right to speak in the name of the state. And that, therefore, new groups need to take on the mantle of uh, government in these contexts. And that, therefore, they argue, they should have the right of representation at embassies abroad within international institutions and over investments held by the state in abroad. The push for external legitimacy becomes a key aspect of the diplomatic strategy. Finally, in the writing on interim government, international agency is portrayed as a benevolent facilitator of transitional rule, interested solely in ensuring regional security and the delivery, the delivery of humanitarian benefits. Power politics and interstate rivalries may be background complicating factors, but are obstacles that can be overcome in order to understand how interim governments come into being and how they can act successfully in post-conflict transitions. However, with the cases I'm addressing, these governments in waiting, it actually demonstrates how these institutions come into being through and not despite an international contest for power. So that's the, the third claim I'm going to be trying to make over the next few minutes. So what I'm going to take you through is three different stages in this argument. The first is how do we get here? What, what is the historical process that leads to the creation of these bodies? The second is how they've gone about generating legitimacy. And the third have been the problems that they've encountered as institutions in, in, in developing their role on the international stage. The first is the learning experience, how, how we've got here. And that has a number of different historical precedents, of course, but the central one, because of its importance in international politics and its, and its um, significance in, in the Arab Middle East, was the Iraq case of 2003. In the context of the anticipated US-led invasion, a range of Iraqi political activists in exile mobilized and were primed to take up the mantle of governance once the Ba'athists had been overthrown. There was a process of preemptive organization, but it occurred primarily within the context of one country, the United States, which largely in a secretive way organized uh, Iraqi political groups to take over government um, once the Ba'athists had been toppled. It also fell prey to domestic political wrangles with the US Department of Defense and the US State Department each having different plans, organizing different groups, organizing different prospective rulers and timetables for transferring power to them. And that led to what could only be described as a messy process of handover in the Iraqi case with different projects on the run at the same time. Um, eventually, um, of course, we saw this ha the handover to firstly an advisory body, the Iraqi Governing Council, and then to a transitional government in April 2005. But it was a process that I think was generally seen by almost every actor, not least the Iraqis themselves, as deeply unsatisfactory. 
There was, however, a, a high level of continuity. The actors that were installed by the US in 2003, 2004, onto the transitional government in 2005, often, in terms of the personnel, kept their role in successive phases of the Iraqi government, up to the present day, including under Haider al-Abadi, the current prime minister. The arrangement of cabinet-level positions was retained, as were many of the same personnel. When the same individuals weren't kept on as ministers, the position tended to be transferred to somebody from the same, um, same political faction as the early minister. So th that demonstrated the significance of the transitional phase for the post-transitional government. So in that sense, there is a sort of sense to which the transitional phase is seen to matter that comes out of the Iraqi experience for who goes on to be the rulers afterwards. But it left us a range of, a range of other lessons, more negative lessons, about how things could be done better. And the central claim is that these aren't just absorbed in US or UK policy, but they're also absorbed by organisations that go on to become significant actors within the uprisings themselves in further context, future contexts. Three lessons. The first lesson that was drawn is that it's unlikely in any post-authoritarian context that any one single political group can command major majority support in the aftermath of the ousting of the old regime. Encouraging the emergence of a broad forum of opposition groups to develop a common front is preferable to a single group as an alternative government. Secondly, the experience of Iraq showed how a political vacuum emerges quickly as an old government falls. Excluding political parties isn't going to be effective. They will try to capture power if it's not given to them. Thirdly, the time it took to form the Iraqi governing apparatus and the difficulty acquired in acquiring broader international support, particularly from other states in the region, was perceived as a significant failing and allowing the formation of the government to occur solely within the parameters of one state's foreign policy precluded the possibility of other states buying in to that system. So a hostile or suspicious regional environment within which neighboring states were not perceived to be acting as, um, to, to limit the flow of weapons or to limit the flow of personnel to insurgent actors was thus directly related to the sense that the emerging Iraqi government was a distinctly American project. And so the third lesson was to prevent that from happening by drawing upon a broad range of states to give their endorsement to the transitional government. And so in contrast to those who saw the emergence of post-independence governments in the Arab world, classically in Roger Lewis's famous studies of the Iraqi and, and Libyan governments, in which the elite comes out of interactions with the colonial power, here we have a situation where instead the idea is you need to draw in a range of states into giving their endorsements to this new body before it takes over power within these cases. These were ideas that were absorbed not just by external actors, by the US and UK or others, but it came to be absorbed by the opposition groups themselves. So, if, so these groups, as they're looking for international support, come to take on the same language that is, has been adopted within US and UK policy circles. So these ideas came, of course, to relevance in the aftermath of the uprisings. Tunisia and Egypt didn't move quite quickly from situations of uprising to the establishment of new governments. There was a degree of external brokerage between political groups 
that being an opposition, to create a timetable and an organising framework for initial elections. But there wasn't, as it were, transitional government phases. However, in the three cases I'm addressing now, Libya, Yemen and Syria, there is a, a protracted period within which the departure of the old order is delayed. Um, and, the, and in that phase, in that phase between the beginning of, this, of the uprising and the establishment of the new order, in these three cases, the argument goes, there is a significant degree of opposition mobilisation around the idea of transitional governments. Now, what I'm doing for the next few minutes is drawing attention to three significant similarities between the ways in which they organise themselves. The governments in waiting all involve coalitions of political groups which agree to a joint platform and common representation. In Yemen, this was the meetings especially held at Sana'a University, in which opposition groups collectively proposed a transitional government, 17 named individuals from across the political spectrum. Um, they put together a 143-member national council. But then, and this is the crucial stage, these ideas are taken up at the Gulf Corporation Council and United Nations level. They significantly, they take up the idea of a transitional government as part of their negotiations with the Sahleh government. But what they do is um, take them up and propose joint um, um, representation of the General People's Congress, the, 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 the party of the departing president, and the five leading opposition groups collected within the joint meeting of parties block. So what they do is they put together an idea for a form of transition that involves members of the old government and members of the opposition. In Libya, the, the initial attempt to form an interim administration took place in Beda, in eastern Libya, on a non-partisan basis. But within days welcomed participation of opposition parties as well as defectors from the old government into its fold to form the National Transitional Council. The formation of the equivalent body in Syria was more complex. It went through a number of different phases. Firstly, the Syrian National um, Council, the Majlis, um, um, and one branch of the Free Syrian Army in July 2012 declared the establishment of an interim government consisting of 31 ministers and claiming support from a diverse array of national political groupings. By contrast, many of the groups originally in, based in the diaspora who were opposition actors disavowed the possibility of a joint platform. And so um, I was at a meeting in, of um, opposition groups in May 2012 in, in London um, of various opposition groups who put, together, who, who put together a statement which said, both the West and Turkey, I'm quoting here, have been obsessed with the need to encourage the elements of the various opposition groups to find common ground. The West wants a strong opposition leader that can represent and speak for us all. This attempt has proved futile and is a distraction. What is required is a strong multifaceted opposition, not a united opposition. That assertion is all the more noticeable as five months later, the major Syrian opposition, opposition groups, including the same individuals who'd been at that meeting in May, together agreed to form the Syrian National Coalition. And the reason they do that, the reason they make that shift from thinking originally that the diversity of perspectives is good to agreeing that a single united front is best is because of the seeming success of the Libyan case. Gaddafi had been overthrown, the Libyan NTC had managed to organize successfully parliamentary elections in which different constituent parties and leaders had predominated. 
see merely converting its external status into domestic authority. So the turnaround for Syrian political groups indicates that they came to find the advantages in international support and credibility outweighed the disadvantages that they'd identified earlier. That's the first similarity, the diversity of parties operating within one united framework. A second major similarity between the cases is the extent to which the three governments in waiting were transnational creations. In Yemen, it is the United Nations and the, the GCC which took the lead role in drawing up the agreement for a transitional period, particularly, of course, the Saudi government. They drew up the roadmap, they brokered the negotiations, they put together and nominated the individual actors. Within Libya, it was a group of foreign diplomats who took the lead in organising the NTC, defecting diplomats from especially the United Nations, the deputy head of its mission at the United Nations, and the Libyan ambassador to the US, who took that leading role. And they coordinated closely with the French government in according initial international status. In Syria, the Turkish government began the process of attempting to coordinate opposition groups systematically. It was taken up then by the British. The Saudi government put together a program of funding, and later Qatar took a central steering role in the process. The eventual announcement of the SNC occurred in Doha at a press conference organised by the Qatari government. It's a mistake to think of these national political groupings as either being facilitated or compelled to establish a government in waiting. <coughs> Instead, in each case, there's an interpenetration of national political processes and foreign policy in which advice, incentives and interests aligned. In that way, one can see it almost as the international acceptance of a, of a class of agents who have international prestige or credibility, a sort of international intelligentsia, as Rashid Khalidi once, once put it, um, which, in which uh, authority is accorded to a new set of actors who are seen to lead the way for a different mode of government in those cases. And leading on from that, there is a significant extent to which state actors and international organisations cooperate to form the support for governments in waiting. In each of these three cases, there was a friends of um, organisation, friends of Libya, friends of Syria, friends of Yemen. Each of these three cases, there was a group of friends, in other words, um, other states, which took, the took on the mandate of supporting a political transition in each of the three countries, both in generating funding for and according international status to the government in waiting. Recognition of the representative nature of the Libyan NTC was particularly significant then in, in, um, in legitimising armed action against the Jamaria government, with a number of members of the Security Council um, explaining their support for military intervention because they had received a request to that effect from the NTC. And this is in some ways a lasting situation whereby external actors take on a significant role in nominating, authorising, engaging with uh, um, activists within this context. And one sees it in the Syrian case up to the present day. Um, in, in the um, meeting in St. Petersburg between officials from the Saudi government, the Saudi defense minister, and, and Ru Russia in earlier this year, the Russians proposed that to form a Syrian government, each state should just nominate 10 different, 10, 10 different Syrians to speak on behalf of the Syrian people. So the Saudis would nominate 10 people, the Russians would nominate 10 people. 
Americans would nominate 10 people. And this would be, as it were, um, the, um, the, um, the framework for a transition in Syria. In Vienna, um, the Russians, again, put forward a list of 38 people who they considered to be acceptable for this format. So in that sense, nominating people, authorizing them on the basis of, of, um, of their perceived legitimacy as, as spokespeople for their country. The third similarity is the extent to which each of these groups have looked for international status as a primary focus of their activity. In the Yemeni case, it's getting that authorization through the Saudi and, uh, government and then the UN. Uh, in the Libyan and Syrian case, it's getting authorization at the United Nations to speak on behalf of their country. And it's winning the authorization or the, uh, uh, through being recognized as the legitimate government of that territory. So with the Syrian case, it was the statement from the US, the UK, and France that the SNC considered, was considered the sole legitimate representative of the Syrian people. That became so significant in authorizing their status on the international stage. In the Libyan case, it's been given control of embassies, um, Libyan embassies abroad in 2011. In the Syrian case, it was having control over, over the, the embassy in Qatar in Yemen, very quickly, it became a case of being authorized to sign contracts for and on behalf of the Yemeni government in international financial dealings. So in each of these three cases, authorization comes from being recognized by leading actors on the international stage as being the representative government of that territory. Okay, second theme is legitimacy. The second theme I want to come on to is, is how they've gone about acquiring this legitimacy. So in each of the three cases, one would think that there would be some direct uh, relationship between domestic um, um, popularity, domestic organization, and international legitimacy. But in each of these three cases, that link is difficult to, 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 to identify. In the, case of, um, um, in the case of Syria, it wasn't the organization of the SNC itself. It wasn't its ability to bring in activists who had some form of on-the-ground presence that led to that statement about it being the internationally recognized authorizing body. But it was the massacre by the Syrian government in Hula, in which uh, 108 people are um, believed to have been killed, um, which led to international agents looking to the SNC as the representative body for the Syrian people in this case. Um, in some ways, it was a rebuke to the Syrian government by recognizing somebody else to speak on behalf of the Syrians. That was so significant. In the Libyan case in 2011, it was the attempt by the African Union, which didn't recognize at the time that the um, Gaddafi's government was, um, was no longer going to continue to exist. In some ways, it's a way to combat, as it were, the attempt by the African Union to um, lead a negotiation package in which the, the Gaddafi government would be, continued, uh, would be allowed to continue. In that sense, it becomes a useful signaling device to declare somebody else represents Libya in order to break with the AU peace delegations strategy. Um, and so in that sense, the international dynamic propelling recognition and declarations of support for government-in-waiting is to a large extent independent from the development of organizational capacity 
coherence and domestic legitimacy of the institution itself. There are obvious ways in which they have tried to cultivate that legitimacy, most obviously in the Syrian case, by providing support for Syrian local councils that have allied with the SNC. So um, over the course of the last four years, the attempt to provide support for SNC allied councils has been a significant one. But the most plausible form of legitimacy to which governments in waiting have aspired has been bound up with the expectation of their ability to, br to bring in to being an order in itself that will be recognized as legitimate. That is, they bring in pre-commitments to external actors that they will accept that a certain form of humane and democratic rule is necessary for continued legitimacy. And therefore, this legitimacy will be forfeited in the event of the violation of those principles. This is augmented through statements of principles that all the governments in waiting explored here have issued. They've made statements about the importance of human rights, of democratic government, of participatory, non-discriminatory forms of rule. However, all of these three situations have been plagued with difficulties, as is obvious to anybody who's, who's, who knows anything about the three of them. Some of these are just difficulties are accidental, but there are also significant problems that have applied across all three cases. And that's where I want to end. That, that's going to be the theme on which I'm going to end this, this talk, the problems of the three. With each, the inclusivity of the government in waiting was limited by the acceptability of specific political groupings to state sponsors. In Yemen, Ansarallah, the Houthi movement as it's commonly called, the religio-political movement from the northwestern region, was locked out of the interim government and largely from the constitutional debates by virtue of the ongoing antagonism between it and the Saudi government. All three countries have Islamist groups whose histories has made them unpalatable to Western states, most obviously the Al-Qaeda affiliates and Daesh. But equally, in the, in the Syrian case, the main Kurdish party, which came to control a large part of the Northeast, the Democratic Union Party, um, the PYD, has been marginalized by the SNC despite the PYD's commitment to a democratic transition because the PYD has its origin in the Kurdish, Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, long portrayed by the, the Turkish government as a primary security threat. Competition between states has led to repeated changes of leadership in the SNC. They're currently on their fifth president in, th in a three-year period. Uh, Khaled Hoja the long -term, has been a long-term resident of Turkey, now overtly allied with the Turkish government, and therefore, through that process of Turkish influence, has alienated many potential supporters of the SNC. Hoja said in a recent interview, as of now, only Turkey truly supports the coalition. International competition for influence helps create the government-in-waiting, as I've been arguing, but it also problematizes its capacity for inclusivity. With regard to the creation of the legitimate order, it's tempting to look at how interim governments have transferred into situations of rule insofar as they have come into situations of power. But in the, uh, and so in the Iraqi case, as I mentioned earlier, the people in the interim government transitioned into being governmental actors after 2005. But in the Libyan case, of course, you have the NTC winning essentially the first elections in Libya, but then breaking up 
in the years after that. It doesn't hold together as a unified coalition. And of course, you have the situation now where in Tobruk, you have in the Far East one parliament and in Tripoli another. Yemen, of course, has had that different trajectory with Hadi being um, 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 expelled with the takeover of Sana'a by the, the Ansar Allah movement. All three cases point to the extent to which the formation of the government-in-waiting has strongly influenced the initial composition of successor governments, but has not been able to circumvent the highly disorderly nature of transitions from long-lasting authoritarian governments. This outcome isn't simply the result of a lack of resources available to the government or the venality of a new political elite, but by portraying themselves as inclusive with democratic objectives and international backing, they've actually fallen short on the very principles that they have espoused in the first place through virtue of the need to coordinate with external actors. The experience of governments, of, of the countries in which the governments in waiting have come to power indicates that confidence in them as a form of effective actor in establishing legitimate political authority is so far unproven. So just to conclude, what brings these three cases together is not just a formal characteristic or a self-ascribed designation, but a series of political features that mark out this category as novel. They're distinctively transnational creations. They're the product of a negotiated process involving a host of actors from powerful and neighboring states, national and regional political groupings, and international organizations. An emphasis is on their multi-site formation with an unwillingness to be subject to or the prevailing influence of a single external body. As a result, they draw disproportionately upon a certain class of political agent at home in the world of international diplomacy and with credibility in foreign capitals. The transnational nature of the process also leads to this institutionalized learning process with leading agents and supporters of specific governments waiting in governments in waiting, drawing upon the experience of their predecessors, both to appeal to precedents and to demonstrate the recognition of their past problems. They come into being due to the absence of a functioning government within the state, but crucially, they face dilemmas of legitimacy. Not having an established structure of governance over the population for who they came to represent, they have to draw upon innovative ways to present to international and national audiences their claim to a right of rule. They do throw they do so through discourses of inclusivity and technical competence, and by binding themselves in reliable commitments for the future. But the experience of transitions nevertheless shows how these legit legitimacy claims are rarely unproblematic. International support for the creation and development of governments in waiting constitutes, as does suspicion over their potential to create new and effective political authorities. Well,